Hi folks, it's Tegan Taylor here. I'm about to hit the road for Occam's Razor for a couple of our famous live events. And I would love it if you would join me as part of the audience. We're heading to Tassie and Sydney in August. Head to our website to book your ticket. But for now, one from our Melbourne event just last week, a little question about the animal kingdom for you. How many species do you reckon menstruate? I mean, we humans do, so don't all mammals? Well, no, as it turns out. And that has implications for how we understand female reproductive health. It's something Jared McKenna spent a lot of time pondering while doing his PhD on a very particular type of mouse. I would like to start my talk today by inviting everybody to think about some pivotal scientific discoveries in the past century or so and what they've done for humanity. Penicillin, microwave oven, x-rays, insulin, um, even Viagra. So believe it or not, these discoveries um, were also actually have got one thing in common, and that's that they were all discovered completely by accident. So they're quite familiar, but I'm going to talk about um, one accidental discovery today that perhaps you haven't heard of, but is equally important. With around half the people on this planet with a menstrual cycle and the internal machinery that perpetuates this very species, it's hard to think of a more important area of human health than female reproductive health. Unfortunately, there are enormous gaps in our understanding of female reproductive health and what sits between us and that understanding are two very, very large hurdles. For most of documented history, Women have been excluded from many aspects of work and social life, including healthcare, education, science, and scientific research. And in fact, a study in 2022 um, revealed that out of 120,000 published research papers, 82% of those authors actually are identified as um, a man, and the remaining 17% as women and less than 1% as non-binary. So clearly we have a very significant underrepresentation of women and non-binary people in research labs and institutes all around the world. And this means conversations aren't being had, experiences aren't being respected, and knowledge isn't being shared. So with the patriarchy's firm grip on society, we've ended up with a research and healthcare sector that is built by men and for men. The perfect example of this uh, patriarchal grip is the contraceptive pill. It's the most prescribed and recommended form of female contraceptive on the planet um, more than 60 years after its introduction to the market. In the same period, there has not been um, a single male hormonal contraceptive pill or otherwise that has been approved for use in anywhere near the same volume and, and number as the female contraceptive pill. In fact, several clinical trials uh, over the past 20 years or so testing several different alternatives to male contraceptives um, were actually ended early because of undesirable side effects, which for anybody who in the room or listening today who has taken the female contraceptive pill or any form of female contraceptive will identify this as a laughable example of toxic double standards. <laughs> so while the patriarchy, of course, is significant, I'd also like to highlight another hurdle in female reproductive health research, and that is the lack of a suitable animal model. So animal models have taught us an almost unfathomable amount about evolution, our species and our bodies. And we routinely use animals like mice, fish, um, even larger animals like cows and pigs to study different aspects of our own human health. 
and we share a large percentage of our DNA with our mammalian relatives. So this often means that there's a high degree of translatability of what is physiologically happening in one species, say a cow, and what's happening in a human. However, human-female reproductive health is a very unique process or a unique occurrence in the animal kingdom. And to demonstrate again how unique that is, I ask everybody to ponder another thing. Of the roughly 5,500 mammalian species that are living on this planet, how many do you think have a menstrual cycle? The answer may surprise you. It's about 80. So that equates to roughly 1.5%, a little bit less than that. So that is exceptionally rare in nature. Of those 80-odd species, menstruation is, is almost entirely restricted to the great apes, uh, gorillas, orangutans, us, chimpanzees, and some smaller primates as well. However, there is also four known species of bat, and the elephant shrew is exceptions to this rule. <laughs> so why can't we study menstruation in these species like we do with other areas of human health? Well, animal-based research is incredibly difficult for a number of reasons, not just financially, but also logistically and ethically. So I'm sure we can all imagine the ethical and financial limitations of studying the menstrual cycle of a captive gorilla and can appreciate the logistical difficulties of studying the menstrual cycle of a bat. So this leaves us with induced models of menstruation in mice, where menstruation is artificially induced, and the elephant shrew as accessible animal models. Perhaps not surprisingly, the induced models have very limited translatability, and the menstrual cycle of the elephant shrew is actually quite different to the human um, menstrual cycle. So clearly neither animal um, has that high degree of translatability and practicality that we're after. And up until about six or seven years ago, we were at a stalemate. But thankfully, a researcher at our lab at Monash University had a remarkable discovery. Dr. Nadia Bellafuri, a PhD student at the time, was performing a routine procedure of flushing the spiny mouse vagina with saline. This is called a vaginal lavage. And this is used to collect cells and analyze them. And the lavages are a fantastic diagnostic tool to give you insight into how the reproductive tract is functioning based on what cells are present and at what time. However, after several lavages, uh, Dr. Bellafiore found blood in several of the pipettes that she was using for her lavages. And I'm sure you can imagine after a sheer amount of panic and some more experimenting, she realized that she wasn't injuring or hurting the animals in any way. And the blood that she was um, noticing was actually occurring cyclically. So blood would appear for around two to three days, and then it would disappear again, reappearing roughly nine days later. And so the cycle begins. Dr. Bellafiore had just accidentally stumbled upon the world's only known menstruating rodent. But what does this mean? Well, I'll circle back to what I mentioned earlier about animal models. For an animal model to be considered translatable, they must mimic the human condition very, very closely, whilst also being ethically, financially, and logistically viable. For menstruation and female reproductive health research, that has been incredibly difficult. For example, there are several hallmark characteristics found in all menstruating species, including cyclical ovulation, spontaneous differentiation of the uterine lining after ovulation, and also remodeling of the uterine blood vessels after ovulation, giving birth to few well-developed young, just to name a few. And while these characteristics are not unique to menstrual species, the combination of them is. So for spiny mice to be considered a true menstruating species and a good animal model, it must then possess all of these characteristics. 
And I'm happy to say that after just six or seven years since the discovery, we have confirmed every single one of these characteristics and more. So from the deserts of Egypt, the labs of Monash University in Clayton, spiny mice have not only challenged the long-standing dogma that rodents don't have a menstrual cycle, but they've also well and truly cemented their place as the most accessible small animal model of female reproductive health. So what can come from this? Well, thankfully a lot. For example, being such an understudied area of healthcare, the evolution of menstruation has largely been up for debate with several different theories being thrown around over the centuries around why and how it evolved. The most convincing theory at the moment, thankfully, is also supported by spiny mice. Simply put, our bodies want to maximize the chance of pregnancy while reducing the chance of female or maternal mortality at the same time. And the body does that by selecting the best embryo and tightly regulating how far that embryo implants. Too shallow, and it won't implant correctly, resulting in a miscarriage. Too deeply, and it will also result in a preterm birth or a miscarriage and life-threatening injuries to the baby and the mother. So clearly there's a very delicate balance here. And over time, there's been this evolutionary arms race between the embryo invading deeper and deeper and the uterus getting thicker and thicker until we've reached the stage that we're at right now with the uterine lining thickening before ovulation and then spontaneously preparing itself further immediately after ovulation to prepare for that highly, highly invasive embryo. It's like building a brick wall. You can line up all the bricks fine, but without the mortar, the brick wall is gonna fall down and in this case, you won't get a pregnancy. Also, if there's no embryo at the time that that uterus is replicated itself and it's ready to go, it will shed itself, and this is what we uh, refer to as a period or menstruation. So my own research looked at early stages of spiny mouse pregnancy, and we found even more similarities in proteins that were secreted, enzymes and hormones, and how the uterus prepares itself after pregnancy for the next pregnancy as well. So findings like this demonstrate the huge potential of spiny mice for unraveling female reproductive health, not just for pregnancy conditions like preeclampsia, but also in the development of new contraceptives. So after 60 years, we may soon be able to say goodbye to the pill. The world is a spiny mouse's oyster. <laughs> so to bring it back to the start of my talk about pivotal but accidental scientific discoveries, I think this is another one of them. And even though gender biases and the patriarchy are here, so are spiny mice. <laughs> we can't sit idly by with such a powerful animal model at our disposal and it's conversations that we continue to have publicly about fertility, normalizing periods, menstruation, female health, that will drive that curiosity and investment in future research into female reproductive health outcomes and hopefully improve those outcomes for people all over the world. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Jared McKenna, an outreach program coordinator at the University of Melbourne. Jared was speaking there at our Occam's Razor live event at the Royal Society of Victoria on Wurundjeri land. I'm Tegan Taylor and I'll be scurrying back into your feed with more surprising science this time next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.